Good morning. Today is Sunday, June the 10th, 2012. We're at the First United Methodist Church of Fountain Valley, California. Through the Bible Sunday School class, we will be in Ezekiel chapter 24 this morning with Murray Darch opening us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your promise that to be with us where we're, where we gather together and we, we rejoice this morning in the opportunity to open your word and to look and... Uh, and for the instruction that it provides, and we ask you now that you'd uh, bless this time that we have together this morning, that we might uh, learn more of your, uh, your your methods and 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 your desires for our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, we discussed briefly before we turned on the recording about the lesson last week, chapter 23, Ahola and Aholibah, the two prostitutes, Samaria and Judah. And uh, the Lord had said that Judah, the one that's in captivity now, the people that Ezekiel was with in Babylon as he's receiving these messages, that, that, that Judah had been more corrupt than her sister in her lust and in her whoring. If you read the All of Scripture, and a lot of my studies this week took me out of uh, Ezekiel to get some of the other flavor of what was happening right before they went into captivity, because we're going to begin today with them being in captivity. And one of the places, two of the places I went to were Obadiah and Micah. And um, Obadiah is actually only one chapter, so we'll someday do that book pretty quick. But um, um, in Obadiah, the Lord will bring judgment, uh, judgment against Edom, and that's going to be one of the next, in chapter 25, the Lord is going to address the other nations. So that was one of the places my studies took me. And to the book of Micah. And the book of Micah is very interesting in this whole Samaria versus Judah. And it opens and says... Um, hear you peoples, all of you, at verse 2, pay attention, O earth, and all that's in it. So the Lord wants everyone as his audience. And he starts talking about how he's going to come out of his place now and come down and deal with the situation. Now, Micah prophesied between 750 and 686. 750, 686. And the fall of Jerusalem is 586. So one of the things you have to put into perspective is how long and patiently the Lord had dealt with his people. So Micah began prophesying shortly before the um, fall of Samaria, 722, to the Assyrians. So if you can think about that just 20 or 30 years later, the Lord already knowing you know, what would happen with Judah. But it wasn't like the Lord just lowered the boom on them in a moment. He had sent the prophets for a long time, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and some of these littler prophets. But he says at verse 3, All this, my coming down, is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And I pondered that and I thought, how can Samaria be a transgression of Jacob? And you know what? It's because they were split from the time 
under Jeroboam I, that they split the kingdom, it was very displeasing to the Lord. And then, of course, we know that Jeroboam, as I've mentioned many times, so worried that the ten tribes that went with him would pilgrimage to Jerusalem and keep all the feasts, he set up false worship centers in Dan and Bethel. And what did he put in those worship centers? Golden calves. And you're like, hmm, deja vu. And so he set up a false worship cycle that mimicked the worship cycle that the Lord had created. And you think to yourself, that has got to be extreme wickedness. And yet somehow the Lord saw Judah's sin as more wicked than even Samaria. So then it goes on. And what is the high place of Judah? Or where is Judah deceived? Is it not Jerusalem? Well, Ezekiel's going to go on to tell us here in chapter 24, through dramatic prophecy of losing his wife, that Jerusalem and the temple were an idol. So when I look at Judah's sin, I think, what is it? It's religious hypocrisy. And it was still with them all the way in Jesus' time, because if you read the Gospels, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he said, they are hypocrites. And so you think to yourself, Samaria and all its sinfulness, and, and them pondering, why is he talking to this woman at the well, this Samaritan dirty woman, they might as well have said. Yeah. And yet the Lord somehow saw the sin of Judah more corrupt, more treacherous. Treacherous was Jeremiah's word for Judah, and Ezekiel's word corrupt, but they're similar. And here... Her transgression is her disharmony with her own brothers and sisters and thinking that she was more highly prized of God than they. Okay, So it says, I will make Samaria a heap and a place for planting vineyards and I will pour down her stones. You can go on to re read. For this I will lament and wail, verse 8, verse 9, for her wound is incurable. Samaria's wound is incurable and it has come to Judah and that's Micah 1.9. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So just the consistency with which the prophets paint this picture of Samaria versus Judah and yet by the time of Christ the Pharisees are still in that mentality. Yet they studied all these scriptures and said, hey folks, we were considered more treacherous than Samara. In fact, her breaking away from us, somehow the Lord thinks we're in sin because of this. Because you know, the Lord loves unity. If you read that psalm, it's like the oil that runs down Aaron's beard, the unity of the brethren, in, you know, in the bond of peace. And here they were a fractured people. And then finger pointers. Oh, Samaria. Oh, they're gross. They're gross. Does that sound like... And I thought about all the nations. And what might be the nation that would be accused by God of religious hypocrisy? Hmm. That's a scary thought, isn't it? As you try to apply the scriptures to your own life, to your own time frames, that the Lord saw Samaria as a transgression of Jacob. We are brothers. No, you're not going to separate from us. 
the seed bed for their uh, separating set by Solomon, who took the kingdom down with his own sin, his own concubines, worshipping their gods and thinking he could blend this temple that he had dedicated and had such a, a, a awesome epiphany of the Shekinah glory coming to dwell in the temple, the same Shekinah glory that Ezekiel saw leave in those earlier chapters, remember, and it went over east of the garden and all that. I think Ezekiel also gets to see it come back in a later chapter. We aren't there yet. There's some glorious chapters ahead of us. We can plow through these these ones. But I just thought I would just open up to you the thought that in the reading of Scripture, you have to take it all into context. What are the time frames? What's happened before and what's happened after? They had many prophets. And remember Jesus said, I think I even wrote this one down, as he was talking to the, and addressing the Pharisees, he said, well, he said, they asked for a sign, and there no sign be given them except the one of Jonah, okay? Because they were still stuck. They'd already had their Babylonian exile. They'd had all that, but they still, at the time of his appearing, were in religious hypocrisy and in spiritual darkness. So, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, till we get to Ezekiel, and they're actually there in Babylon. So chapter 24 dates the siege of Jerusalem in the ninth year in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month. The more specific a book is, the more likely it's true. That's one thing about the Bible. It dates things. And that is, to me, a sign for unbelievers that you can deny, but there is a lot of evidence. There's evidence by secular historians, that the datings in the Bible are true. So I guess if you want to date the ninth year, the tenth month, and the tenth day, the commentators will tell you that's January 15, yeah. 588. Yeah. You can't get more specific. So, Bible trivia, I always think I... Please date the date of Jeru the, the, the siege of Jerusalem. 586, they fell. So you see, they fought for almost a good two years before they had to surrender, but with no choice. Yeah. They put up a fight, and we know the fight was intense because there was no food in Jerusalem, and actually we know that there was even cannibalism beginning, like dawn or pass, because there was no food. So here's where it begins, January 15, 588. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. You see the purposes of God. You're going to put this thing and memorialize it because there's a lot of people after you that are going to read about this. People like us. Yeah. People like us. Write this day down. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day and utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, thus says the Lord God. So if Ezekiel is already in Babylon... And now the Lord's saying, write down this day, the siege. You can see that there were deportations. So is Ezekiel remembering back to an older time, or is it actually happening while he's with this group in Babylon? Probably could be a little of each. But it wasn't like everybody just got drug off to Babylon in one fell swoop. It happened over... And I think I read one time there was actually three separate deportations. 
So he says, thus says the Lord God, set on the pot, set it on, put water in it, put in the pieces of meat, you're making some soup. All the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder, I would agree with him on that. Those are the pieces I like. Fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest one of the flock. Pile the logs under it. Boil it well. Seethe also its bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot, whose corrosion's in it. And corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed is in her midst. She put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it into the ground, on the ground to cover it with dust. To rouse my wrath, to take vengeance, I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed, that it may not be covered. In other words, I'm going to parade Judah and her sins. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, I will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the file, boil the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned up. Then set it empty upon the coals. Now, I don't want to be gross here, but bones don't burn easily. If you know anything about cremation, you know this, that they actually don't complete the process. My understanding is I actually had a client for a very short time that had owned a crematorium. He actually had had a mental breakdown. He told me that's a very difficult job and dealing with the people. And one time he let a family watch, he said, and because they begged. And it was too much when they saw the fire engulf the body. But bones don't burn well. That's why they always find bones. And so um, if you think about the Valley of Hinnom, where they sacrificed their children, they found the bones. Because they're sacrificing their children by fire, but the fire wasn't burning up all the bones. I mean, I hate to get scientific gross because I'm not much scientific here. So the Lord is basically saying, this has got to be a very hot heat because i got to deal with the bones burning up because there's so much purification needed. Then set it empty upon the coals and it may become hot and its copper may burn. In other words, I've got to burn the flesh, the bones, and the pot, because it's corrosive, I've got to bring it to the melting stage. This is a very hot, hot heat that would do that. Um, that its uncleanness may be melted in it. Well, we know that the New Testament tells us that our trials are similar to the refining fire. And for the purpose of removing our uncleanness... I guess it would be safe to say that proportionately, the more unclean, the hotter the fire. The hotter the fire. That the corrosion can be consumed, the Lord says. She has wearied herself with toil. Its abundant corrosion does not go out of it. Into the fire with its corrosion. On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness. Do you hear the, the depth, if you could say God has emotion? I would have cleaned you, and you would have none of it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wings, Jesus said. But you wouldn't. But you wouldn't. We can go back into those other prophets we studied. What more could I have done for you, my vineyard, than what was already done? Isaiah 5. 
I would have cleansed you and you would not be cleaned. You shall not be cleansed now anymore till I have satisfied my fury upon you. See if I can get this quotation right, St. Augustine. The, the Old Testament is the New Testament. Let me think. The Old is the New Concealed. The new is the old revealed. So, the satisfaction of God's fury is what sin requires. And upon whom did he place that fury? Upon the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. You see how you have to read between the lines to understand that sin must be dealt with, and it must be dealt with by judgment. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. What we deserved, what these people deserved at this point in their history, is what all sinners deserve. And for us to understand that our sin was nothing we could deal with ourselves. That it took a God who is able to have justice and mercy flow mingled down, as the hymn says. I think it's um, the, when I survey the wonders cross. <laughs> I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass and I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. He'd been telling them this for a long time. He made Jeremiah stand at the door of the church and tell them, remember? And so, another thing you read between the lines is that if God has said it, it will come to pass. So, things that he said then, they didn't believe would come to pass, and their false prophets said it wouldn't. Yeah. It has. So, things that he has said that haven't transpired yet, we can know what? It will come to pass. He said a Messiah would come who would die for their sins, and it came to pass. He said he would be resurrected, and his flesh would not see corruption, and it came to pass. And he said that greater things would we do by the power of the Spirit because he goes to the Father and it's coming to pass. And he will return for his own and it will come to pass. And we will die a spiritual, uh, a natural body and be raised a spiritual body and it will come to pass. And so that's what we learn about the scripture. What he's already said has come to pass. What he said that hasn't come to pass will come to pass. We may not know how he can do it. How can he raise the dead ones. Who knows? It's the power of the resurrection. And it's a light thing for God. So, he says, I said I would do it. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. Okay. Now, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. Fasting. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. Well, I would say that chapter 23, and Holiba would be hard to teach to Sunday school. But how would you teach chapter 24 in Sunday school? That God would take a righteous man's wife and allow her to die to explain the meaning of things to his people. Why do the righteous suffer 
so the wicked can be brought to God. Why does Elizabeth Elliot have to lose husband and sons for the sake of the gospel? These are things that can only be understood when the purposes of God and his glorification are where everything is headed, glorification of Christ. And so look at the great cost to Ezekiel to be son of man. And there was another son of man who paid a great cost, who died so his wife did not have to die, but could live because he was the resurrection and the life. And then you see the patterns and patterns that, that C.S. Lewis talks about, the depth and riches of the love of God that Paul talks about, because these are heavy passages. And the people said to me, verse 19, will you not tell us what this means? Lord, what does the parable mean? We don't understand that you are acting thus. Well, to you it is given to know, Jesus said, but for them it's not given. So I speak in parables. Remember when things started to turn against him, he stopped speaking plainly, the gospel writer tells us. So they didn't understand either. What's going on? Ezekiel's wife was fine. Now she's dead, and he's acting a little weird. What is going on? And I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power. How could God destroy his own temple? Because they had profaned it, and it had become an idol, the pride of their power. Well, we know it was pretty amazing because the queen of the south came, right? From Sheba to see Solomon's temple. Okay? The delight of your eyes, which is what he had called Ezekiel's wife. The delight of your eyes. Jesus said his delight was to do the will of God, the psalmist says. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O Lord. So their delight was in this thing, which this temple, which had surrounding countries knew all about their temple. And it was very purposeful on Babylon that they were going to raise that temple burn it and the same with the Romans when they had that lesser temple the one that was built under Ezra and Nehemiah and later beautified okay so this is the pride of your power the delight of your eyes and the yearning of your soul and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword so now you know they're one of the earlier deportees and they're still sons and daughters in Jerusalem who will die by the sword which has already been prophesied in earlier chapters they will die by the Babylonian sword and you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. Your turbans shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. And you shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign. So, the pain in that, in the life dedicated to God, whose life has to be a sign. Well, I think we have people like that today whose lives are signs. Their lives belong to the Lord, and it looks like the Lord does not care for them. He sure treats his people a little on the rough side, one might think. Okay? Well, when you see it in the big perspective, everyone that's in our life is borrowed from God's library. The library's his, and all the books are his. And when he decides, I want one back, 
Well, we mourn and we lament, but ultimately our Christian mourning doesn't mourn without hope because there is a hope laid up and our loved one is actually in a better place. But we think that we have the right to, what is it? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay. Now, he says, um, Ezekiel is a sign according to all that he has done, you shall do. This is how you will posture yourself as you hear about the siege and what's going on. You shall uh, not cry aloud. You shall not cover your lips. You shall eat, not eat the bread of men. Put your turbans on. See, dress up. This is happening over in Jerusalem. And when this comes, you will know that I am the Lord God. And as for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy, their glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. And on that day your mouth will be opened to the fugitive, and you shall speak and be no longer mute. So Ezekiel can't say anything right now. I think about father of John the Baptist. Remember, mute until the mm -hmm. son was born. So you will be assigned to them, and, and they will know that I am the Lord. And you've seen a lot of movies. They're up behind the, the fort fortress wall, and they see one running on a horse with news. And the fugitive runs up. <gasps> Sir, they're all killed. The sword, they've profaned the sanctuary. That's what it was like for them. And that day, the fugitive's going to come. He's going to tell you. And you're going to yeah. be able to speak. I see that we are at our quitting time for today. Would George like to close us in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your word, for um, for sharing with us, Lord, um, your plans, Lord, and, uh, and understanding about yourself, Lord. And uh, we look to you this morning, Lord, that you... Um, I encourage us and fill us with your spirit, Lord, as we sing your praises in Jesus' name. You have been listening to Bible Study Verse by Verse with Vicki Mulak. For more of these podcasts and some resources, please go to our website at www.biblestudy.com vbv.org org that's www.biblestudy v is in victor b is in boy v is in victor the vbv stands for verse by verse .org org there you can register and contact us or just leave a comment we welcome your feedback Thank you. This is George Mulek.